Welcome back to the Alexander Schmidt Podcast, episode 46, Homer's Iliad, book 15, part one. Last time we were talking about the disobedience of Poseidon, as well as the conniving and deceptive work of Hera in, uh, and, and her very much effective efforts to seduce her husband while also uh, conniving her way into the hearts and, uh, or rather, uh, tricking both Aphrodite and and um, effectively negotiating with Hypno Sleep in order to uh, have each of them play their part in her plan, getting both the zone of the graces from Aphrodite in order to become irresistible to her husband Zeus to get his mind off the battle, as it were, and also using Sleep in order to post-coitally make Zeus fall asleep so that he continues not to pay attention to what is happening on the Trojan field, where, of course, Poseidon, against his will and direct edict, is advising the Achaeans. And so there is some small wiggle room there. Poseidon is not technically physically helping the Achaeans, but is em empowering them through uh, strong counsel and uh, helping to uh, get their spirit and morale, uh, particularly through helping Agamemnon out. Recall that in our last lecture, Agamemnon, having been um, encouraged by... Um, by Poseidon, then spread his encouragement amongst nine or ten thousand uh, different individuals, and so uh, the idea there was that, however the leader is, the people around him reference him. And in fact, when we get to the Aeneid in Book One of the Aeneid, it will be clear that Aeneas is feeling rather terrible after a terrible storm sent by Juno, which destroys three tenths of his ships and something between 150 and 210 of his people, um, assuming that there are 50 to 70 people on a ship like there would have been on the Achaean ships. Um, but somebody can correct me if I'm wrong there. Well, Aeneas, while hunting and felling seven stags, one for each of his ships, will, um, will in his heart feel terrible, will feel distraught and disheartened, but he will put on a brave face for his men, and that's something that Agamemnon is still yet to yet to do. When he is uh, feeling encouraged, he acts in a courageous way. When he is feeling discouraged, he acts in a discourageous way, in an uncourageous way. Um, he, he does not yet know how to put on a strong face for his people and how to differentiate his individual self from his self as a leader. And so, today, the very first thing we're going to see is Zeus awakens, and he is none too happy. And in fact, I'm going to read a quote to you from right in the beginning of book 15. But now Zeus awakened, this is line four, by Hera of the gold throne on the high places of Ida, and stood suddenly upright and saw the Achaeans and Trojans, these driven to flight, the others harrying them in confusion, these last Argives, and saw among them the Lord Poseidon. He saw Hector lying in the plain, his companions sitting around him. He dazed at the heart and breathing painfully, vomiting blood, since not the weakest Achaean had hit him. Then the father of the gods and men, seeing Hector, pitied him and looked scowling terribly at Hera, and he spoke a word to her, hopeless one. It was your evil design, your treachery, Hera, that stayed brilliant. Hector from battle terrified his people. I do not know. Perhaps for this contrivance of evil and pain, you will win first reward when I lash you with whip strokes. Do not remember. Do you not remember that time you hung from high? High and on your feet I slung two anvils, and about your hands drove a golden chain unbreakable. You among the clouds in the bright sky hung, nor could the gods about tall Olympus endure it, and stood about but could not set you free. If I caught one, I would seize and throw him from the threshold until he landed stunned. 
on the earth. Some think that was how Hephaestus got injured. And there's some evidence for that in book one, that that was uh, the the instance that Hephaestus was, um, was uh, alluding to when he uh, gently reminded his mother not to get into a fight with Zeus because if that were to happen, if anybody were to stand between them, well, they would share Hera's fate. And some think that that's uh, what Hephaestus was alluding to. It's almost clear, I would say, that that is what Hephaestus was alluding to. And some think that that is how, during his nine-hour fall, his his foot turned club and he became lame. Though, by other accounts, that is due to a birth defect. Um, it's unclear exactly what Homer seems to think on this issue. But what is clear is that when we get to Milton... He will model the fall of Satan and his fallen angels on the fall of whom he will call Mulciber, Hephaestus. Uh, and so uh, Hilton, or excuse me, Hilton, Milton, in his attempt always to glorify his epic over all the epics of the past in true epic tradition of one epic poet trying to do outdo another, like one hero trying to outdo another, um, he will he will have his demons, his fallen angels, fall for nine days rather than simply nine hours. Continuing the quote, you with the north wind's aid winning over the storm winds drove him on across the desolate sea in evil intention and then on the swept him away to coast the strong founded. I myself rescued him there and brought him back once more to horse pasturing Argos when he had been through much hardship. I will remind you of all this so you will give up your deception. See it if your love making in bed will help you that way you lay with me apart from the gods and deceived me. All right. So Zeus just said quite a bit and those were lines four to uh, 33 or so. And so Zeus immediately wakes up and sees two things. He sees Poseidon on the battlefield contravening his direct order from book eight. And he also uh, um, sees Hector vomiting blood. And he sees next to him, his wife who's just seduced him quite effectively and uh, intelligently puts together the idea that Hera has been working with Poseidon and uh, therefore has conspired to take his attention off the battlefield uh, in collusion with Poseidon while Poseidon helps the Achaeans out. And thus the two Achaean gods get their will at the uh, um, expense of Zeus's direct command in the service of fate. And so this cannot stand. Uh, unfortunately for Zeus, he makes a mistake in his accusations. He suggests that it was the design of Hera that made this come to be and recall it was Poseidon that decided to do this all his own the moment that Zeus turned his eyes away um, and that Hera simply observed the fact that Poseidon was going down to help the Achaeans on the battlefield and thus decided on her own without collusion with Poseidon to uh, distract Zeus. And this apparently will um, suffice to, um, to uh, appease, assuage Zeus. Um, because he, he will actually quickly give up the case. And one of my, might imagine that that is because he precisely what angered him so much was the idea of collusion between Hera and Poseidon. And the fact that Hera might do something in her interest against the interest of Zeus and fate. Well, uh, Zeus has already indicated when he threatened both Hera and Athena with a uh, lightning bolt that he expects this sort of behavior out of Hera. And so he, he can only stay mad at her for so long. And well, uh, given that they're both immortal gods, that sounds like a wise course of action on his. Uh, the other way to interpret this um, situation is Hera gives a very sly response where she makes several different promises and oaths, um, but she only, uh, she only uh, says 
that she did not collude uh, with Poseidon. She did not share in the design of this plan with Poseidon. She does not say that she did not directly help him in order to help her side, which she clearly was doing. And so she is not being impugned for her desire to help the Achaeans, which she's already been clear about. She's being impugned, it seems, uh, based on the grounds that uh, she committed a design against Zeus. Um, she So she is allowed to, <laughs> to work against Zeus when she happens to notice uh, the opportunity arises if it happens to be in her interest, it appears. And that, that I would say is a very, very interesting sort of way of looking at the relationship between Hera and Zeus. Because in recognizing Hera's nature, it's, it seems to sh save um, Zeus a lot of pain in the marriage. Precisely because of the fact that he knows that sometimes she will want things that he does not want. And perhaps that offers itself as an example to uh, we humans. And so when she responds... Line 35, now let earth be my witness in this, and the wide heaven above us, and the dripping waters of the Styx, which oath is the biggest and most formidable oath amongst the blessed immortals. The sanctity of your head be witness, and the bed of marriage between us, a thing which I, at least, could never swear vainly. It is not through my will that the shaker of the earth Poseidon afflicts the Trojans and Hector and gives aid to the others, but it is his own passion that urges him to it and drives him. He saw the Achaeans hard-pressed beside the ships and pitied them. No, but I myself also would give him counsel to go with you, O dark-clouded. That way you lead us. And so, as we notice, Hera uh, swears on four uh, different uh, extremely holy objects. Uh, the earth itself and, and the heaven, uh, Uranus and, and Gaia, uh, the two primordial gods, though, of course, it's Okeanos and Tethys, who are the father and mother of the gods in this count. And she also swears on Zeus's head, which, of course, he made such a big deal about earlier on. Recall that he, he said that because some thoughts are too weighty for Hera, he would not share all of his counsel with her after he had um, agreed with Thetis to honor her son by hurting the Achaeans, which hurt, which started this whole tiff in the first place back in book one, and also on the marriage bed, which she, of course, says is sacred to her, uh, directly referencing back to uh, Zeus's seven liaisons that he mentioned while he was attempting to hit on his wife, who was attempting to seduce him in order to uh, um, uh, uh, go around his will, you might say, um, uh, work around his will. And so, so she had some barbs in there, and she says it was not her will that Poseidon was following, indicating that she did not command him or, or conspire with him, but rather simply uh, obliged him, helped him after observing his very helpful efforts on her part. But now she, she, she capitulates too, and she says that she would, were she in Poseidon's shoes, follow the will of Zeus. And so Zeus, uh, potentially, potentially he does get back at Hera here. What he then does is, um, well, before I get to that, I should mention one thing. Um, uh, before I mention uh, how he actually does punish Hera, I did sort of elide over uh, a brutal moment in uh, domestic violence history uh, uh, without mentioning it, which was that uh, Zeus has once... And we should keep in mind that Zeus is a god who is anthropomorphized and therefore not human, and same with Hera. So this is not the same as an actual man doing this to an actual woman, but as archetype of God the Father and, uh, and uh, Mother, uh, one might imagine that 
uh, they do have some responsibility for how they act because, of course, mortals will, uh, to some extent or another, uh, a, uh, use the gods as examples or patterns of behavior to uh, mimic and imitate. And so Zeus uh, once did punish his wife. And he did not physically beat her, but he did um, uh, sprawl her out and tie anvils, what, uh, 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 what uh, like a blacksmith, excuse me, uh, or Hephaestus would use uh, to forge uh, weapons on, uh, to her feet. And so he stretched her out and made her stare at the chaos beyond. Um, and essentially saying, if one sees this symbolically, that this is what's outside of the presence of Zeus, pure chaos. And that when you go against my will, the will of fate, and work to destroy that which is bounded, that which is social, well, this is what you're left with. And as Hera is the goddess of marriage, and uh, um, without social creatures with which to deal, one might imagine that she had to encounter the purposelessness of her existence outside of existing among uh, or with Zeus. And uh, we can see one can see the opposite angle to this perspective in the, the Hebrew story, Genesis, where it is man that finds himself purposeless and lonely, uh, even though he has a job without woman. And that's very interesting, too. I would say, as a, as a young man, as a single man, not married, that uh, going home is not the same as going home as a child, though I wouldn't say I had a particularly happy uh, youth uh, at the home. There was a major difference between home and just being somewhere. And I would say now myself living not in a place I own in property that is mine, but in, in, in an apartment that I pay rent for uh, without the presence of family and deep friends around, that it, it's, it truly does not strike me that this is a home. And it is not the same as going to a home. And so one sees that this threat is the basic threat of masculinity against femininity or femininity against masculinity, that one without the other lives in existence, which is somewhat pointless. And this reminds one also of the symposium in Aristophanes' account therein, where the original man who was androgynous, or or uh, yes, was androgynous in terms of having both female and male parts and was spherical and rolled about, well, that man became too full of himself, attempted Olympus, and was split in half by Zeus as punishment. And originally, uh, the two sides, and this is so sad, and there were three different sorts. There were the sorts that became males that loved females, females that loved males, and um, those were the, which were same-sex and loved each other. And um, sadly, at first they would just go about longing for their other half and not be able to conjoin with them in some way. Later on, Zeus, in order that they not die of sadness, made it so that they were capable of uh, conjoining and reproducing with each other, and thus uh, having some measure of happiness, so said, or so suggested Aristophanes. And one might imagine that that which they produce together is not simply um, a, a pleasant act, but the home in producing a child, in the fundamental archetype of father, mother, and child. And so it is as if Zeus is saying, when you work against me, you work against the very purpose of your existence. Harrow, which is to create a home or a society uh, in which venerates us. It's very much an interesting idea of old Zeus. Um, again, we have there mentioned too Heracles, another mention of him, and, but it's the same mention as from Book 14 uh, that Sleep brought up, which was when he was used effectively to 
uh, dupe Zeus, or rather to put Zeus to sleep so that Hera could use the help of the North Wind, Boreas, uh, Aurora Borealis, uh, Lights of the North, Northern Lights or Northern Dawn, more technically speaking, um, using Boreas to push uh, Heracles from Argos, horse-pasturing Argos, as it's called here, um, towards coast, and Zeus had to go himself and remedy this situation. And so, now his true punishment to Hera begins by him simply telling her what the will of fate is. He says, listen, Hera, I told all the gods to get off the battlefield because this is the sequence of events which needs to occur, which is not even particularly pleasant to me. I have to allow Hector to do very well here so that Patroclus goes back to Achilleus and treats him to fight, and uh, Achilleus then allows uh, Patroclus to fight in his stead. Patroclus will then do exceptionally well against the Achaeans, including killing my own son, which I hate because I love this son and will, in fact, uh, cry blood rain for this, named Sarpedon, Sarpedon, as the Brits would say. And after Patroclus fell Sarpedon, well, Hector will have the opportunity, with a god and another human's help, to uh, kill Patroclus. And when Patroclus has fallen to the sword of Hector, well, that will rouse Achilleus back to the battlefield, and through Achilleus, his efforts, and those that happen after his death, we will inevitably lead to the crushing of Troy, which is your will, Hera, and also the will of fate. So, Hera, what I need for you to do is to go to Olympus and summon two gods to me immediately, Apollo and Iris. And Iris, I'm going to tell to go down to Poseidon to remove himself from the field of battle uh, before I go to fight him which is what Zeus says that he would have done. He would have directly, hand-to-hand, mano-a-mano, fought against Poseidon, not simply thunderstruck him and astonished him. He would not have thrown lightning at, or the thunderbolt at Poseidon, he will later claim, which we'll go into. But Apollo is also to be summoned to him, and Apollo is to go down and heal Hector from his terrible concussion uh, immediately. And so Hector uh, will will soon be relieved of his uh, blood spewing uh, and... And so all the damage that Hera has done with the help of Poseidon will be rendered somewhat mute. And so Zeus sends her on. And so sending Hera on is also a bit of an insult to Hera's dignity, seen as that's Iris's work, that's a messenger goddess work. So it's as, uh, as slightly as if Hera is not only being cast out of the good grace of uh, Zeus, but also being demoted uh, to messenger for a moment. And so he sends Hera to get Iris, and to get Apollo. And Apollo will breathe strength into Hector and uh, restore him uh, and drive panic among the Achaeans. And notice also that word panic, pan. Pan is the god of uh, nature and chaos, uh, like Eris in uh, the Greek mythology. And so uh, when you encounter the chaotic element of nature, the, the allness or wholeness of nature or the eeriness of nature, then it causes that that great uh, terror, panic, and panic is a, a major emotion that we can talk about not only within nature, but um, within society as well when being exposed to nature. For instance, when, say, your city is under attack by another force, as happens to Aeneas, and in fact, panic is the emotion he feels right before he loses his wife, Creusa, running through the streets of Troy right before he gets to the gate and freedom. And so... Well, you can believe that he thinks about that emotion and its overcoming force on him every day of his life after that, and that he, like the good Roman 
that he uh, exemplifies, that will later be embodied by true Romans, um, well, you might imagine that that is one of the great events in his life that causes him to wish to embody Stoicism or the the victory of the rational mind over the emotions. And though, of course, the, the rational mind we know from current neuroscience cannot overcome the emotions, it can put one's life and schedule in order in such a way as to limit the effect and the arousing of such emotions and differing motivational forces like hunger, uh, need for sleep, um, and uh, so on. And so Hera returns to Olympus and immediately Themis, a former wife of Zeus, goddess of justice, not Thetis, the mother of uh, uh, Achilleus, she confronts Hera and she can tell that something is wrong and she asks whether something is wrong and Hera says, of course something is wrong and it's of course because of uh, Zeus and we, we, all, we all attempt to do the will of Zeus, but he says he's just stronger than all of us and he's going to do whatever it is that he wants to do anyway. And so she is very much upset and it's, it's unclear whether she's upset at the uh, totalitarian nature or ty- tyrannical nature of Zeus's rule or rather because she's upset because she got caught in attempting to do something uh, that she wanted to do that Zeus had not allowed. And so whether she is sort of being bratty at this moment, or or is uh, actually sharing a true injustice that she feels has been committed against her is also a bit unclear, as things can be unclear with Hera. And so she she says, you know, even even this edict to keep us gods out of the battle is so unfair because Ascalaphos, Ares' son, just was killed, and Ares either had not recognized this or was already rather peeved at this notion because he slaps his hands against his thighs immediately and says, that's fine. I'm going to lash up my chariot and take fear and hate with me. And uh, they're going to help me. And uh, then I don't, uh, you know, Zeus be damned. I, I don't care if I, I get thunderbolted. If I get torn from the sky, I'll do this. And uh, well, luckily his sister Athena, uh, goddess of war strategy and the intelligent aspects of the war rather than simply the brutish and vital or violent acts of war as uh, Ares is god of, she, she talks Ares down. She says, you fool, madman, insane. Don't you know what Zeus can do? And don't you know that already you're not in his good graces? And haven't you already sort of dealt with enough lately? Best if you don't bring additional hardship on yourself. And Ares, Ares then listens. And after that, Hera, after that tense sta- state, uh, that tense situation, Hera sends Iris, down to Poseidon with the exact message, or excuse me, she sends Iris and Apollo, not directly down to where they're going, but up to Zeus so that they can receive their exact commands. Because recall, what a messenger does is not interpret the message uh, necessarily of the message sender, but to repeat it directly back to an individual. And one might imagine that that's uh, simply an epic poet technique, uh, that it shows sort of uh, uh, not the... Uh, a lack of style on the poor, on the poet's behalf in order to uh, ease memory for with a mnemonic device suggesting that uh, the repetition of a speech is just duplicated or imitated in order to give uh, the poet fewer lines to have to remember. But I find that less persuasive than the idea that messengers were trained to give exact messages because it was not their interpretation, but rather their repeating of the words that the leader could speak. 
that was most interesting and if you uh, that was most necessary. And though a messenger would likely be educated enough to understand language uh, it, to the same or to a great extent, to an extent similar to that of a leader uh, at this time, though it was not a learned time in the 8th century and, and in fact reporting issues from the 13th century uh, BC, um, I, I do think that the notion was that uh, the better the memory of the messenger and the better the messenger could repeat the message of the actual leader, the fewer um, unnecessary conflicts would arise. And uh, given this age of social media and Twitter and spin and retelling that which has been said and the game of telephone, one might imagine that uh, many, many, many conflicts that need not happen could be avoided if people were were exact and precise in their speech. And we knew precisely what it was that we were saying and the ideas we were representing and uh, how to present them to each other in the clearest possible way. And so, Zeus commands Iris to tell Poseidon that he needs to leave the battlefield not only because Zeus has commanded this, but because Zeus is stronger and older than Poseidon. And both these claims are rather major. On the one hand, uh, Zeus is never, ever older than Poseidon in terms of uh, regular mythology, um, uh, Grecian mythology. He's always the youngest, and that's very meaningful because his father was himself the youngest Titan who overthrew his father Uranus. Uh, Kronos was his name. And so when Zeus does this, it's the exact same sort of moment. And you see this sort of thing happen again in uh, the Old Testament and, uh, where, like, say, it's Jacob, the youngest son. And, uh, or excuse me, Joseph, the youngest son of Jacob, who, who, who overwhelms, who, who does well. There's an inversion of order, generally in a patriarchal sort of society, um, which the vast majority of societies ever have been. It is the eldest son who, who receives the benefits and the title to land. And in fact, that's, that is, that sort of patrilineal descent is precisely how, um, how it, would later come to work in the Greek and the Roman world, uh, especially under the Julio-Claudian Empire, and so uh, during their dynasty or, or tyranny, depending on how you see it. And uh, but uh, it was not necessarily always going to be that case uh, during the time of Homer's heroes, Agamemnon, Achilleus, and Odysseus. Uh, it, it was a little bit more populous in that the kings. Uh, did not rule with an iron fist over over the people that they uh, that battled for them. For one, these individuals uh, chose freely to be there. Um, they were not uh, simply conscripted and enlisted, though it is the case that many of the heroes who came came because of an oath to Tyndareus that Odysseus suggested back when many of the heroes courted Helen and all lost but Menelaus. And in so uh, in, in instigating and giving that tip to Tyndareus, uh, Odysseus... Uh, got the opportunity to run a race uh, in order to win his later wife, Penelope, cousin of Helen, and just as smart, if not smarter, though of a different, a different cloth in certain ways. And so one uh, notices that in, in actual history, uh, uh, and I know I didn't totally finish this point, but I, I have to tie this back in at some point, um, that um, it is generally the eldest son who receives the glory and uh, the household of the father. But in both Greek and Hebrew myths, it is often the youngest son who, who subverts this order. But in this case, 
It is to Homer's advantage, and we know that he changes mythology to his advantage whenever he needs to. He changes Zeus to the eldest brother, and this will be a rhetorically meaningful and for a good oratorical and argumentative reason in just a moment uh, when Iris actually reports down to Poseidon and commands him off the battlefield. Um, Apollo also receives his orders from Zeus, but he will not go down to do what he needs to with Hector until Iris has gone down to see uh, um, Poseidon, and you might consider this an intelligent strategic move, because then it, Zeus has Apollo at his beck and call right next to him in case he needs to go fight against Poseidon. And also, he is ensuring that the first step of his plan is completely enacted while actually um, managing it this time around and observing whether it is done or not, because he can see what's happening down on the earth, um, rather than assuming that it will get done and sending both his people, or both his gods as messengers, both his children, you might say. Uh, I don't know that Iris is actually his daughter, though. Um, rather than sending them both down at the same time, he'll send one down first, get the first thing done, and then he'll send the second one down and get the second thing done. And so rather than trying to have parallel events, he will do them sequentially, um, just as thought works. And so Iris goes down to see Poseidon. And well, what does she say to him? She says, Zeus commands you off the battlefield because he is both stronger and older than you are. And this makes Poseidon so unhappy. In fact, it makes him so unhappy that he gives this very, very, very great speech. Then deeply vexed, this is line 184, the famed shaker of the earth spoke to her. No, no, great though he is, this that he has said is too much if he will force me against my will, me who am his equal in rank. Since we are three brothers born by Rhea to Kronos, Zeus and I and the third is Hades, lord of the dead men. All was divided amongst us three ways, each given his domain. I, when the lots were shaken, drew the gray sea to live in forever. Hades drew the lot of the mists and the darkness. And Zeus was allotted the wide sky and the cloud and the bright air. But earth and high Olympus are common to all three. Therefore, I am no part of the mind of Zeus. Let him in tranquility and powerful as he is, stay satisfied with his third chair. And let him absolutely stop frightening me as if I were mean with his hands. It were better to keep for the sons and the daughters. He got himself these blusterings and these threats of terror. They will listen because they must to whatever tells them, whatever he tells them, to line 189, or 199, excuse me. And so Iris responds to this, um, am I to tell Zeus then that you will not be doing as he asked? The one thing about that is, is that you know that in fights between blood relatives, the Furies give priority to the Elder always. And uh, this actually causes Poseidon to smile, and he says, a wonderful thing is a, is a messenger who knows justice. And what does this mean? Well, this means that he understands that Iris has, without saying exactly or specifically what it is she means, she has, she has uh, said all she needs to say to express what she means so that uh, Poseidon can maintain his dignity and honor while also bowing out of a fight that would not go well for him. And uh, so basically what she says is, uh, is she, she addresses a, a point of order for Poseidon, suggesting that he not fear Zeus, his brother, who he claims to be equal to, um, uh, he, but rather that he fear 
going against um, uh, morality and contemporary ethics to such a degree that the Furies would come after him. And recall that the Furies do come after those who spill the blood of their family members, and apparently they give priority to claims of the eldest, uh, suggesting the idea of patrilineal descent right there. And so Poseidon agrees, but he does leave Iris with a threat. If Zeus attempts to go against the will of the other gods, and here's another populist instance here, suggesting that there is sort of a bubbling democracy beneath the uh, sort of weak monarchy and mar monarchies that uh, that uh, currently that currently uh, occupy the the Greek tribal nation states. He says, "Well, Athena, Hera, Hephaestus, Hermes, and I will all rebel." And Zeus will have a hard time of dealing with us. And though Zeus earlier made the claim that he could drop a golden thread and then pull it up, even with all the gods attached to it, and pull the earth up itself alongside them, which seems a bit bigger than they are, uh, this this threat seems to have some force. And uh, Zeus Zeus will not directly uh, deal with that because he doesn't need to because he sees what fate is and he serves fate and fate wants exactly what Poseidon once, and so that will not be an issue, and Zeus can see this clearly, and Poseidon perhaps can see this clearly as well. Well, well, it would be in nobody's best interest for there to be such division amongst the gods, especially not Zeus's, and especially not Poseidon's. Ah, oh, yes, and what I was going to say is that uh, Zeus, what he, what he addresses rather than po uh, Poseidon's uh, threat is the fact that uh, if he were to have to fight against old Poseidon, that it would um, it would be quite the fight. In fact, I, I, I suppose I should read that to you. Uh, he, he says this to his son, of all people, to Apollo. Go now, Phoebus. This is line 221 to line 229. Lines 221 to 229, excuse me. Go now, beloved Phoebus, to the side of brazen-haired or helmed Hector, since by this he who encircles the earth and shakes it, that's Poseidon, is gone into the bright sea and has avoided the anger that would be ours. In truth... This would have been a fight those other gods would have heard about who gathered to Kronos beneath us. Now this way, it was far better for me and for himself also that for all his vexation before he gave way to my hands, we would have sweated before this business was finished. Now, you're, now yourself, and this is something slightly different from the mythology that I had conventionally known, uh, take up in your hands the aegis with fluttering tassels and shake it hard to scare the Achaean fighters. And recall... 231. Those last two lines were to 231. I'm sorry, uh, Angered's having some trouble today, so I'm not sure what's all getting cut off and not, but if anything does get cut off, I'll just add it in in a later uh, episode, so uh, stick with me, please. Um, and hopefully I'm just addressing nothing in this moment, and maybe I can edit this out at some point. Yeah, right, I don't know how to edit anything. <laughs> so, um, Apollo and Athena, both children of Zeus apparently can wield his aegis, which is his shield, which has the face of a gorgon on it, like Medusa, with uh, uh, a face with uh, the blank eyes that look so horrifying and the heads of snakes, uh, suggesting that it is the face of nature exposed without um, in all its universal complexity at someone, like snakes coming from everywhere, which would be a horrifying dream image. And so the aegis, whenever shaken above an army creates fear and confusion in the army opposing them. And so the fact that Apollo, who's on the Trojan side, receives this aegis means that he receives the favor of Zeus, which means that he will be shaking that 
shield near Hector to Hector's great glory soon. Aegis means victory. And later, Athena will have access to the Aegis at the side of Achilleus, but not right now. And so, Apollo goes down to see Hector, and Hector's already recovering because he can feel the will of Zeus moving through him again. And Apollo directly asks uh, Hector, not apparently disguising himself very well, he says, what are you doing out here? Has, there, has something happened to you? And Hector... Hector responds that he's been grievously injured by not the weakest of the Achaeans, which is a weak way of describing Aeus the Greater, who is, of course, the strongest of the Achaeans right now with Achilles out. Apollo then breathes great strength into him. And as Hector receives this strength and goes back out to battle, uh, Thoas, son of Andrymon, the ninth or uh, probably the ninth per person you would remember from the people who um, volunteered to fight against Hector way back in Book 7. Recall that it was Thoas, Eurypolis, the Aeuses. Uh, Menelaus attempted but wasn't allowed to. Odysseus, Diomedes, Aeus the Greater, and Agamemnon, who all tried. I might be forgetting somebody. Um, but um, Thoas sees Hector return and is amazed himself, believing Hector to have been killed by Aeus the Greater. Because Last thing he saw, Hector had been struck in the collarbone by a giant rock thrown by Aias, the sort of rock that not two men of these days could possibly pick up. And so, this is, again, another instance of a Trojan getting grievously injured by rock and then reappearing due to the, the healing arts of Apollo almost immediately after Recolonius had this happen uh, earlier in Book 5. And so, he then suggests that the main cadre of men return to the ships in order to defend them while the champions attempt to hold off Hector. And so Idomeneus, Teucris, Marianes, Megis, and um, Thoas all form around Aias the Greater and will all fight head-on against Hector. And so Hector approaches with Apollo shaking the Aegis before him, which shakes the valor of the Achaeans and will spread terrible confusion on them and a confused melee will result. And so this has been the Alexander Schmidt podcast, episode 46, Homer's Iliad, book 15, part one, and we'll have part two out to you very soon. Have a great day.